Thanks for joining us on the Oasis Church Podcast. To find out more about Oasis, visit CelebrateTheJourney.org. During this episode, Pastor Dennis Ritchie shares a great message that will lead you to new and deeper levels with Jesus Christ. So open up a Bible, grab a notebook, or simply listen along. Lord, would you do the work that needs to be done in each one of us? Would you do the work that needs to be done in our community as a whole? And Father, give us eyes to see where you want us to join you in your work in the world. I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Anybody get the Lexus with the bow? No? We're just not upper middle class enough here, I think. We've got to reach out like into the fair fields. No, right? Okay, so I digress. <clears throat> In 1960, this pastor, theologian, um, his name was Donald Barnhouse, passed away. But Pastor Donald, he was um, considered possibly the best preacher of his day, of his time. And uh, there was a couple reasons for that. People said uh, one of the reasons was because he just had this understanding of the Bible and theology but that wasn't what a lot of people really attributed to the greatness of his preaching. It was his ability to take illustrations from his life, connect them to the scripture, and just uh, allow people to understand in a way that they've never really understood what he was preaching on before. And um, as pastors, we, we look for these illustrations online, and there's books of illustrations, but one of them caught me that he used uh, way back, who knows, 30s, 40s, 50s when he was preaching. But he tells the story of him, it's the end of World War I. Now remember, this guy, is, he's died at an old age in 1960, so he served in, in World War I. And he said he was walking in Belgium, and it was the end of the war, and it was in an area where the Germans had retreated, so they left all of their artillery and their tanks and their trucks um, in haste as they left. And he was walking... Um, down this road, and the road was canopied with trees, and it was early springtime. And as he's walking, he, you know, the sun is shining. There's this spring warmth in the air, um, and there's, and it's the the air is still. There's no wind. There's no breeze. And so, as he's walking, he notices every once in a while a leaf would fall from the tree, and it just caught him by surprise because it's not fall. It's not. It's spring. And as he was walking, a leaf fell from a tree and actually landed on his chest. And he took the leaf off, and it just kind of crumbled in his hand. And what he realized was those leaves falling from the tree were holdovers from the fall and the winter. And he thought about that a little bit, and he came to the conclusions that in the springtime, 
the sap in the trees begins to run and begins to be active and pumps through the roots, through the trunk, into the branches, and eventually creating new bud. And so as this sap is running, it's pushing off the final dead leaves from the fall, giving way to new life, to new birth. And he took this experience and he likened it to the new life that we receive when we receive Christ. That when the life of Christ, when the Spirit of God is flowing through our bodies, it begins to push the old things off and out. It begins to release what was dead and give opportunity for new life to be birthed within us. I know that most of us have experienced some type of rebirth when we came to Christ. Like God gets a hold of you and things just get brighter and new and old habits fall away and new habits get picked up, good habits. But sometimes those old leaves seem to hang on a little bit longer. I mean, we hope eventually that they will fall off. But new life is always pushing out the old the old self, sin, old habits. And that's exactly the thing that's happening in the ministry of Paul as we pick him up in chapter 19 of the book of Acts. Now, in chapter, I'm sorry, um, verse 18 of chapter 19, uh, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, it, it said how all of these people were, that, that the name of Jesus was held in, in high regard. And all these people were bringing their, their demonic scrolls and burning them. They were repenting of their sin. And so scrolls were being burned. Idols, false gods are being set on fire and burned away. In this picture of what Paul has been doing, we see that the Spirit of God is beginning to run through the lives of people. And the dead is falling off. And it's making room for new life new, uh, a, a renewal of an entire person. And so as the people changed, what we're going to see is the church began to affect the culture and society. So let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 19. Verse 21, after all this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and his buddy, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia just a little bit longer. So there seems to be, for Paul, this, this sense of accomplishment, like he's, he's done his job well. The church is being established. People are changing. People are repenting of sin. And he feels that it's time to move on. It's time for him to go and preach somewhere else, someplace where they haven't heard the good news, someplace where um, Jesus is yet to be Lord. And so um, he's living kind of high on the hog. He has success. But as with most of his experiences, it's not going to last long because the darkness always hates the light. About that time, there rose a great disturbance about the way. Now, the way is what Christianity was named before it was Christianity. 
A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines for Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Now remember, in Ephesus, religion is big business. There's a lot of money to be made, a lot of money of making idols, making these uh, little statues of Artemis or Diana, um, making shrines, making altars. Uh, This was big business for these guys, Demetrius and his friends. In fact, some historians would say that the entire economy of Ephesus was built upon the sale of religion or uh, religious or spiritual goods and services. Demetrius was a rich guy. He got rich off of religion. He got rich off the temple. And he was a bit angry because things started to shift a little bit. This way, this Jesus character that Paul is preaching is beginning to hit his bottom line. It's beginning to um, hit his, his pocketbook. But I, I love the way he, he, um, he kind of phrases his argument. First he goes with, we're going to lose money. But then he kind of goes to the spiritual side. Well, what if Artemis isn't worshipped any longer? She won't have the influence that we think that she should have on the world. And so the persecution that the church is now going to experience is economically motivated. The growing, budding church with the life of Christ has invaded a very sensitive part of culture. It's called the economy. It's called people's pocketbooks. And the darkness likes its money. I mean, don't, I I like money too, but not like that. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and his friend, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. seems Demetrius had no problem getting a, a group of people together. Um, Ephesus was like... Uh, Las Vegas on steroids, kind of what happens in Ephesus, stays in Ephesus, drunkenness, um, prostitution, uh, temple prostitution. It was a debaucherous way of life. And so these people, these idol worshipers, they get together. Uh, Demetrius has kind of wound them all up, and they start screaming for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
that would kind of be like me coming up here and screaming for two hours, great are the New York Giants of New York. First of all, not so much. And second of all, that would just kind of be stupid. So this entire city is in chaos, confusion. There's a mob mentality gearing up. It's a tinderbox. This thing could blow at any moment. Paul and the church came under fire because these dead leaves were giving away to a new and vibrant life in, in Christ. And people were repenting of the way they were living. People were repenting of the things that they were doing. People were repenting on a mass scale of, of idolatry, witchcraft, spiritualism, and going after Jesus. Things changed so much so that it began to affect the economy because people were not only changing their behaviors, what and who they worship, but they were changing how they spent their money. And it was starting to affect some of the craftsmen, some of the the trademen. See, whenever Christianity begins to hurt some type of vested financial interest, be rest assured that persecution will follow. So here, here's what I was thinking. Here, here was my musings this past week. What if, like, what if the church would undergo repentance like the church and like the people of Ephesus did? What, what if, what if the church really began to live out this this radical teachings of Jesus and not try to water it down, not try to make it comfortable for ourselves, not try to kind of. Um, worm our way through so we can still do the things that we really want to do. But what if, what if by the Spirit of God that the church repented and just went all in for living the life Christ came to give us? I think the wrath of the world would come down pretty heavy on us. Because our culture is a pleasure-seeking, narcissistic, hedonistic, kind of it's-all-about-me culture. It's just the way it is. I, I, I'm not sure much has changed. I think uh, humanity without Christ has always been that way. Uh, but it's, it's very prevalent in this day and age. And what the gospel calls from us, the church, is self-sacrifice in all the areas of our life. Self-sacrifice. That we would put others before ourselves. Jesus gave a new command. Love one another. Love is not just a word that we can throw around. Love is about taking, taking action. It's like, what if the church, I mean, like all the Christians in America, prompted by the Spirit of God, decided to say, okay, you know what? We are not going to go to the movies anymore. We are not going to rent movies anymore. We are not going to even watch TV until Hollywood just shuts their mouth and do and does what they're supposed to do and just make imagination come to life. Instead of, into, um, instead of putting their, their opinions into morality and into politics and all the, other, the, all the other things that they're involved in. Listen, we're not, as Christians, we're no longer going to watch those things until they just shut up and make movies. What if? Let me tell you, that would hurt the bottom line of Hollywood. That would hurt pocketbooks. And once they figured out it was the Christians who weren't playing by the world's rules, we would hear about it. 
And you can, you can kind of put that scenario across the board to, to anything if Christians took a stand against what the world sees as important. And we shifted our focus to what God sees as important. But I know in my own life and in the life of the church, we're still hanging on to dead leaves. They have yet to be pushed off. Consumerism in the church is a, is a huge problem because many people come with the attitude of what's in it for me. Are you going to meet my needs? There was a family that left our church once and they told me the reason why they were leaving was because they just didn't feel it anymore. Okay. Not quite sure what that meant. And the reason consumerism has found its way into the church because it's prevalent within our culture. Our culture tells us you need more, you need bigger, you need better, you need newer. And that is untrue unless, of course, you're talking about the iPhone. Um, as you can tell, I have sin problem too. Um, but, but, you know, I, I find my, and, and, and I've been thinking a lot about this um, from a few weeks back. I think we've become desensitized to the world. I think we've become desensitized to the draw of what the world has to offer. Like it's, like it's the, like our enemy has cuffed us with handcuffs and has kept us in bondage. But see, the handcuffs, they're, they're made of gold and they have diamonds in them. And they're pretty, and they're new, and they're expensive, and they sparkle. And so we don't mind them so much. But they're still cuffs. He still holds us in bondage. And when we are in bondage to the enemy, we will fail at living into the life that Jesus came and died for. I see in the end of 2019 and 2000 into 2020, Christianity has become somewhat irrelevant and anemic, unless, of course, you're looking for votes. Then it's all about the evangelical votes. That's a bunch of um, crap, I guess is the right word. But our irrelevance has nothing to do with the world. That's, that's the sticky part. Like, it has nothing to do with them. The world cannot live in any other way besides how it's living without God. See, our irrelevance is about us. It's about us not living into the life that God has came, or that Jesus came and died for. Our irrelevance is, is about being desensitized to what the world likes, and we're just... We're just all in. And I'm not pointing fingers. Please, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. I'm part of this too. Our comfort, which I know is, is, it has come under fire a, a little bit, but we are comfortable as Christians in America. Very, very comfortable. We don't sweat things. We don't worry about being persecuted. We don't worry about 
uh, being thumped on. Our comfort comes from the fact that we're just all not in. We're not all in. And that we need to keep, we need to keep one foot in the world and, and one foot with God, and, and we feel that's okay. And it's not. Uh, at least not anymore. It's, it's not okay. I would say this about that, that it's impossible to be filled with the Spirit and set our minds on things below. It is impossible to be filled with the Holy Spirit and our primary focus in our lives is me. And I need to make more money so I can buy more things, so I can make more money and buy more things. It's, a, it's impossible to be filled with the Spirit when our primary focus in life is my comfort. What's in it for me? That goes directly against what the Spirit of God came to release us from and release us into. And what I find fascinating about Paul is he is in this pagan, pagan society, and he never attacks them. He never goes after um, their, he never goes after um, Diana, the, or Artemis, the temple. I mean, don't get me wrong, he wasn't afraid to do so. He would have went head on. But in verse 37, which is in chapter 19, it actually tells us that uh, this clerk gets up in front of this mob and says, listen guys, they haven't blasphemed Artemis. They haven't, um, they, they haven't uh, been sacrilegious towards her. So Paul wasn't saying that she's a false god, you've got to turn, it's demonic. What was happening was this, that the proactive force of the Holy Spirit was manifesting within individual people. And as that momentum grew, that manifestation kind of um, invaded everyday life to the point where economically things started to turn for idolatry. The Christians were making a difference just by the way they were living their lives. Every day, in the marketplace, in the cubicle, at the office, difference. And soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and his friend. Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Paul is a very interesting guy. Um, I would imagine he was a little bit type A, a wee bit intense, um, probably a hard dude to kind of get along with at times. But one thing I could say about Paul is he had a lot of courage. In Lystra, remember that they, they stoned him until they thought he was dead, dragged him out of the city. He comes to, and he charges right back in, right back into the fire. In Philippi, he was whipped, beaten. And in that misery, he decides it's time to worship. <laughs> and now in Ephesus, the entire city is in an uproar because of him. And he is ready to rush in and talk to this crowd who is very aggravated, mob mentality, tinderbox, things ready to explode. 
friends of his are worried that he's going to be killed if he goes in there. He doesn't care. He wants to go in. I believe in the Hebrew, or the, maybe it's in Yiddish, they call that chutzpah. And Paul had it. And so I, I was thinking and asking myself, well, why? Like, what was it? Was he that just, that brave, that um, brazen, just didn't care? But as I kind of thought through and, and just did my little sermon study stuff, um, I believe it was attributed to the fact that in Paul there was this inward, uh, inward purity it wasn't, I'm not, I'm not talking about inward perfection where he was sinless. We know that no one is sinless. But there was a very honest and resolute heart about going after Jesus with everything. Following Jesus with everything. Everything in his being. And, and, and in that, and in that it gave Paul a confidence and a trust in God that went beyond normal everyday stuff. That he did not care. He knew God was in charge. He knew that the gospel needed to be preached. He knew that he was called to preach the gospel. And whether he lived or whether he died, it did not matter. He was going to do what God called him to do. He was all in. And, and that comes from this, this sense of, of just being... Um, Resolute, just, just being a, a, a pure focus on how do I live my life for Jesus. When we don't allow walls to be built between us and God. I mean self-made walls. Because you know, when you're caught in something sinful, the very one we're to run to is the very one we hide from. And that's God. And so we build these, these oh, God. I can't come before him because I'm doing this and, and he's not going to like it. And so we build these, these, we initiate separation. But when we're dealing with our sin and not excusing it, when we're dealing with our shortcomings and not um, making excuses, when we're pressing into prayer, when we're pressing into the word, when we're pressing into grace for the empowerment of our obedience. And then a spiritual confidence begins to grow. I'm not talking about spiritual arrogance. I'm talking about confidence. Not in ourselves, but we are confident in, in God. That he is with us no matter what. No matter if you live. No matter if you die. No matter if you get beat up. No matter if you're victorious in the fight. God is with us. And when you trust God like that, when you're in rhythm and harmony with him in that, those ways, there's a certain peace that comes on your life. Peace in the midst of just, ugh, it's falling apart. But I know God's with me. I know he's with me. I, I experienced this a little bit, um, not on the level of uh, riots and mob mentality, but uh, when we started Oasis, we started at the Grange in Southington. And um, the Grange was an interesting place. Um, there were mushrooms growing in the basement. Um, I tried to tell people it wasn't black mold. It was just dirty brown mold. Um, 
And so about two years into this Oasis experiment, I felt the nudging of God saying, um, it's time to move. We, you need, we need a building. We need something that we can call home. And so we set out uh, looking for a place. And we came to this place. We walked in, and it was kind of basically built out the way you see it now. Um, the ceilings were raised later on out in the, the front part. Um, but um, I walked in, and I went, this is the place. Like, you know, you get that check in your spirit that God says, this is what I have for you. This is the place. I'm like, yes. I mean, it needed to be cleaned up. It needed paint. needed some stuff. But it was better than mushrooms in the basements. And so um, through our real estate agent, Susie G., uh, we found out how much they wanted for rent. And so we went back and looked at our finances. And we could not even offer them an insulting offer for what they wanted. And so me being the godly pastor I am, I got frustrated. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? God, you, you, you tease me by bringing me in here. You tease me by putting it in my spirit that we should move. And then we can't even offer them something that's insulting. And I was frustrated with God. Um, and then this, will you trust me, came over me. I'm like, no. <laughs> I want the building now. Would you trust me? And then I got to thinking, well, you know, it's really not my church anyway. It's his church. And so if we stay at the Grange, I guess that's on him. That's not my bad. I can blame God. And I kept hearing, will you trust me? I said, fine. I'll trust you. Over the next year, a year, through a series of events, actually it was 13, about 13 months later, we moved in. We couldn't afford it. We still can't. But God can. God says, will you trust me? And when there's a trust that in the no matter what, he is with us, when we have not built those walls that are separating us from his grace and from his love. Self-made walls, not the nothing can separate us from God's love. God always loves us, but we back off and we back off. When we're all in, when we're following him, when we're trusting him, when there's this purity in our soul and in our heart that we're going after him, there comes peace. Peace that goes beyond what we can understand. Peace that fills, empowers, and builds confidence in who we are in him. Isaiah would say it this way. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast. Steadfast, myopic, I'm going after it. This is the one thing that I am pursuing, and it's Christ in Christ alone. I'm going to live out the faith that this, this word teaches me. I'm going to press into the things of God. And our culture is constantly pushing against it, constantly pushing against the light of Christ because, again, darkness does not like the light. Perfect peace.
peace because they trust you, because their minds are steadfast. You will keep them, us, me, you, in perfect peace. That phrase, perfect peace, uh, or peace, is the word shalom. It's a big, big word. Harmony, peace, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility, all of the blessings of God wrapped up into one big ball and just dumped all over you. And when it says perfect peace, it's, it's like them saying, you will keep those people in a double shalom. That's who our God is. When the Holy Spirit begins to move through your body, through your veins, and creates in us a heart of repentance, you're going to watch this you're going to watch those old leaves start to get pushed off and fall away. And as those old leaves get pushed off and fall away, you will find that you are, are beginning to get out of sync with the world. And as you get out of sync with the world, it may bite back. But there is double shalom those who are steadfast in their pursuit of the things of God. The rest of the story in Acts 19, verses 35 to 41, it talks to the clerk, that clerk, he gets up and he says, listen guys, they haven't done anything. Uh, we're in danger of being arrested for rioting. Uh, if you want to take up some illegal matter, there are you know, lawyers and courts to do that. And, and he... he um, he, d- he gets rid of the people. He, he kind of, the, the, everybody quiets down and he disperses the crowd. And I, and, I, and I can't help but wonder, like, okay, so here's this clerk who saved the day. But, you know, I have the sense that God is constantly moving things and people around like, like, like a, a, on a checkerboard or, or a chessboard. Because he is sovereign. For everything. And that's, that's a big theological word. It means that he is in control of all things. Sovereignty. Theology likes to define it. We like to have a very cut, clear, crisp definition of the sovereignty of God. I firmly believe that we will never understand the fullness of his sovereignty. Basically, what it means is he's in charge of everything that happens all the time, and it's always working towards his perfect plan. No matter what. Like, and, and that's just, I don't get that, because there's some things I scratch my head at and go, were you sleeping on that one, God? But in the no matter what, as hard as that is to, to get our minds around, God has not left us, will not forsake us, will walk with us, and is continually calling out and inviting us deeper, deeper, more, more. So here we are, the beginning of 2020. Happy New Year. Remember Y2K? (laughs) That was a long time ago, 20 years ago. I remember, like, people in my neighborhood prepping. Dude, just have a gun and a jug of water. That's really all you're going to need. I digress. Um, anyway, so uh, 
It never came to fruition. But we're 20 years into this, this century. And so here's the questions for the beginning of the new year. How's your spiritual life? Do you feel like you're in this kind of perpetual winter with the dead leaves still hanging on? Have you desensitized yourself to the things of the world or even to your own sin? I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about living perfectly. I'm talking about like you no longer care that that sin is part of your life and eh, you're just going to let it go. Are we smiling at the things and laughing at the things that, that break God's heart? These are good questions to wrestle with in 2020. I know I will be. And so my prayer for us as a church this year is that the, the life, the sap of the Holy Spirit would run through each and every person here and it would start to just push out those dead leaves and they would fall to the ground and that in their place, new, new abundant life would, would take shape, take form. And that's we as a church, we as individuals, that we would begin to make a difference in the world, that we would begin to disrupt culture, society. Not in an arrogant way, not in an in and in and we're going to heaven, you're going to hell way. I mean, I mean, nothing, I mean we're talking, I'm talking about just with the love of God and the authority of the Spirit that we would disrupt culture you know when jesus was walking the earth the dregs of society wanted to be near him they wanted to follow him yes he fed them yes he gave them fish and bread and snack packs and things like that yes he cured their diseases but they wanted to be with him it was the religious people who didn't like jesus what does that say for us Maybe we're bringing the message of the gospel in a wrong way. Maybe we're not bringing it at all. But sinners wanted to be around Jesus. And he was straightforward when he spoke of sin. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The woman caught in adultery. Stop it. Don't do that anymore. The man that was healed... Stop sinning. Something worse might happen. And yet, sinners still wanted to be around Jesus. And so here's our tag phrase for 2020. Be like Jesus. It's pretty simple. Maybe we'll have t-shirts. Be like Jesus. He was connected to the Father in a way that... Uh, that we won't fully understand, but he's opened the door that we could be connected to the Father in the same way. He walked in a spiritual authority that we don't fully understand, but he's opened the door that we can walk in that same spiritual authority. And the power that he had is within us because we have the same spirit within us. Be like Jesus. 
push back the darkness with light. Be like Jesus. Heal. Pray over people. Look for opportunities in everyday life. Make people feel a little uncomfortable when you say, hey, can I pray for you? You look like you're having a bad day. And if they say no, say, I'm going to do it anyway, but not in front of you. Push back the darkness with the light of Christ. And remember that don't build walls between you and God that keep you away from him. If anything, your sin should bring you to the foot of the cross, pleading for his forgiveness. And you know what? He will forgive. He will forgive. And so 2020, here we are. Be like Jesus. It's a simple message. Be like Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us a double dose of the Holy Spirit so we could be like your son, Jesus, in power, authority, love, discernment, grace, and mercy. May we be like Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, we made it through. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.